0: Hello and welcome back to the Simplicity Diaries with me, Kim John Payne, um, the author of Simplicity Parenting. Uh, this week, uh, I've been uh, f- finally emerging from um, doing many, many uh, talks in schools, community groups, parent groups about how to parent in a time of, of health and, and social crisis. Um So, forgive me for not getting a podcast out a little earlier on this i 've been very, very busy speaking directly um, with with people about this, both in my private counseling practice but also in the in the schools and community groups that are addressing and struggling with this and i 've learned a lot, listened a lot, thought a lot, like us all um, about the times that we 're living in and one of the um, the the um, images that comes back to me over and over is what one uh, mother uh, said when she said, you know, on one hand, we have, we can, we can be, uh, you know, our anxiety can drive us to being very, very um, nervous, taking steps that would normally be outside our regular parenting values. And on the other hand, we could turn away from this and try and not talk about it at all with our children, not to expose them to anything that's going on. And it reminded me of an image I've been using for years now of a harbour, that in our, um, in our family life we have a harbour, The children, where there is a harbour wall and children sail into that harbour where the water is calmer. But they sail out again after replenishing, restocking, and and um, out they go again into the into the turbulent waters of of life, uh, where they meet life. And their their little boats oh, don't go far from the harbour. But as their boats, their metaphoric boats, get bigger as they get older, they go further and further, and then come back, and then further. And come back. One mother even said to me, her two year twenty-year-olds recently had to decide, um, or a while, a while back, a few months back, decide where to um, where they should um, be during this time of, 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 of self-quarantine. And they came back home, yeah. um, and it was a long journey away. They were in different countries, and they came back. Who knows how that will work out? But. It's a lot of what we're wrestling with has to do with what do we tell our children? How do we work with this? And whilst I'm I'm not suggesting in any way that there's a dam, that we don't tell our children, that we dam up those headwaters and we tell them nothing, no water is coming over the, 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 the dam wall. On the other hand, of course, none of us want to throw our children into super stormy waters where they just can't navigate can't make sense of it and feel um, very uh, unsafe and um, very stressed so what is the middle path this is something that another um, dear mother said you know what is the middle course the middle path in this and for me that middle path is the is this metaphor that that I certainly have tried to live out for years with my own children of of preparing them for going out into the world, they go out. The harbour wall is not a gate. It's there's an opening, and out they go. But as much as possible to have them go out prepared for what they meet, with um, a developmental sensitivity as to as to what to tell them, how much to tell them, and how soon. There's there's of course, the health crisis we're facing and the social crisis, the social crisis born of institutional and long-term embedded racism. And when our children are almost inevitably hearing about this, but even if they don't hear about it, how can we prepare them? Because the way I see it, and, and please, this is just, of course, one person's opinion... But I do not feel that children are colorblind. Um, they, there is a universality to childhood, on one hand, which I think we need to hold. But on the other hand, in terms of race, it's it, it, Study after study, and very reliable studies, tell us that even even toddlers, infants, are um, are, are able to categorize race. Um, in very in very simple, almost simplistic, perhaps ways, in, in at at a very young age. Um, also, um, for I think it's important to understand that research has really disproved that popular belief that children only have racial biases because it's they're directly taught to do so. Um, that would be the kind of a blank slate thing, saying, "Well, if we don't, if we don't teach that, it's it's all going to be okay." Um, the other thought that um, has challenged me for years, or reality really, is that children's racial beliefs are, are really not not only and not reliably related to that of their parents. I mean, we may think that. Um, because we are not racist, anti-racist, that our children will grow up that way. But that discounts what it is that they are going to receive through what um, one writer said, I remember back almost 20 years ago, um, talked about the smog of racism. We're breathing it even if we don't know we are. And so... On one hand, it's very important that children will model themselves on our attitudes, on how, on what we do and what we say, and the stands that we take, um, and that's terribly important. I don't want to underestimate that. But there's also a social aspect which they are bound to pick up. Otherwise, um, perhaps not directly related, but but interesting to consider that children um you know of second generation um folk that come to perhaps an English speaking country can speak with a perfect American English whatever um accent in 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 an English speaking country whilst their parents speak with a strong accent. In other words they're picking up social influence. And I think it's very, very important to understand that as parents, there is a kind of an almost an unasked question that is going to arise for young children because their cognitive structures are relatively immature when they're little. And that that makes stereotyping the sort of being overly simplistic in looking at issues of race, very um very likely and very understandable um and to add to be able to speak about that and add layers to this and subtlety to it and soften that that at times very harsh oh harsh is the wrong word but but um strict categorization that little children make, I think is also uh important. it's almost like you know um. What I mean by societal influences, like if a child is, um, uh, you know, out in, out in the world and they're seeing people that have different um, hair color, different eye color, different hairstyles, they'll see those differences. Um, but when they see skin color, um, they they um, almost certainly pick up that that's treated differently, that somehow something is going on there. And it's almost like a puzzle um, for children. They pick this up also through this mm, smog, through um, picture books, children's movies, television, through message that white is preferable. You know, just the whole image of white what is white and what is black. And I've personally struggled with this because many of the books that I have read to my children, and I I must confess, have have been that of white children. And I'm becoming more and more aware that um, um, I need to question this for myself because, and the reason I've read these books has not been in any way because of colour. It's been because they are slower paced. It's been because they're from an earlier time, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. But in the 50s, 60s and 70s, many black authors, brown authors, couldn't get their books published. So a special little request to listeners of this podcast. If you know of a minority writers, minority in the US, or African, Asian, people of colour who have written beautiful but slow-paced books. I'm a big fan of books that are a little slower for young children to absorb. If you know of any, please let us know. Um, um, get in touch, let us know, and we'll post those because I'm on the hunt for that, very much on the hunt. The, the process that I'm talking about, um, even back in the 90s, was called racial um, socialization, and many um, parents of color would socialize their children and and, and teach them how to filter out um, racial slurs against them. But I think we can do that as majority. If you're a if you're a majority parent, if you're a white parent listening to this, I know <laughs> firsthand that we can do this as well, as when, um, but not so much to filter out, but to filter in and teach a majority child, a a Caucasian white child, that when they hear a racial slur, to stand up, to step in, to invite that child to join their lunch table, to invite that child to be a part of you see, for years, my work has been in something called social inclusion, and I prefer to talk about pro-inclusion rather than anti-exclusion um, only. I know the two things come together, but I prefer to be pro than anti. And I've taught thousands, tens of thousands, to be perfectly honest, children about pro-inclusion in the playground, because their inclusivity... Um, comes down to it. Most certainly, it comes down to race, but it also is inclusivity in the middle and high schools about homophobic attitudes and slurs um, against uh, people with different orientations um, to the to the to the norm uh, or to whatever you know. Uh, but but minority um, in that sense, um, and to be sensitive to that and not be tolerant, but be actively inclusive, and go into the discomfort zone in order to do that. And I find children are amazing when given permission, given tools, and given support to do that. I I think it's very, very important to talk about this, to really talk about it. Um, Silence, in that sense, doesn't keep children from seeing what it is around them they will see it if we don't address it then they will still be absorbing it and to be able to talk about things that are just simply unfair using you know language of a perhaps a seven eight nine year old that it is unfair um that there there is this bias that that there are these things going on in the world one dad was saying over these last weeks they've been lighting a candle every night and saying prayers um for mr floyd and his family um and because his younger children felt they needed to do something other folk may feel differently and that the, when they sail their children with their children's boats out into those stormy waters you might want to um, have older children um, come with you on a peaceful, particularly peaceful uh, rally that you know is going to be peaceful. I, I, my personal um, feeling is that it does no good to expose children to violence. Um, that is where I do draw a line. Perhaps others are, you know, would see that differently. Perhaps it is joining a, a silent vigil um, as we did with, with our kids more recently, it's um, perhaps it's as we, as we did pause when um, as a family, when the funeral of Mr. Floyd was happening for those, for those eight plus minutes and all sit quietly together. In whatever way I, I feel whatever we bring our children, personally, when there's something that can be done age appropriately, then our, our children both hear from us, but also see that 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 some activity is going on um, about it. And you know, if our if our um, if if we say to children that racism, you know, systemic racism um, is not systemic, that it's just the, the, the it's just a few bad apples. You know, and we're hearing this a lot that it's just a few bad apples i i'm I'm uncomfortable with giving that message to children because because then, for a start it's not <laughs> this is systemic and it's been going on for a very long time but it but it actually um says in a sense, we're okay if if we're not bad, if we're not you know, those kinds of sick people um, who behave like that, then you, we're okay, we're off the hook, it's fine. And it's, it's you know, we're not doing anything wrong, so therefore we're okay, we must be right. And that's a very, for me, a, 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 I don't want to teach my children passivity in that sense, over the years, I've tried very gently to bring my own children, and Catherine and I, my wife, have tried very gently to do that around questions um, of global warming. Around, um, and so we, we recycle, you know, but we don't do it desperately, but the children have always been involved in that. But we just do it because that is kind to our soil and kind to, our, to, the, to the planet we live on. You know, and we just simply, but it was active. It's something we could do. Um The and I and, and we could we plant gardens, and we've you know we've as little children we talked a lot about the bees and pollinators, and we planted pollinating, you know, and so on and so on and so on. Um, but I'll never forget the time when we were travelling across country, and my children saw open cut coal mines when they were 12 and 13 years old and just tears streaming down their face as they looked at that because they felt it viscerally. They felt it within their souls, within their being. They didn't have a bunch of just intellectualised information. They'd been planting gardens for bees to pollinate the fruit tree, you know, and so on. And then they saw that and it was within them, not outside them as an abstract Concept. Likewise, homelessness. Um, I'll just give three quick examples if I may. Um, I, I certainly don't mean to over personalize, but I also don't want to hold this away from you know, and no one wants to away from oneself and say this is not anything to do with me. And these are just struggles, and this could be um, sound good to some people and not so good to others. This is a very tender issue at the moment. But I remember um, my children having large questions about homelessness. In our um, town, there's a very large number of homeless people on the streets asking for support, asking, and that's the way we put it to our children. They weren't only asking for money. These people were asking for kindness, to be able to see them and not walk by as if they don't exist, because so much of society does that. But also they were asking for support. So when my kids were relatively small, they were, let's see, uh, about eight and ten years old, around that age, Um, they uh, were talking to a homeless person one day, as we would quite often, and they got talking about making jewellery, because they were making friendship bracelets and all kinds of things, just simple beads and silver wire, and um, just wire, you know, not valuable silver wire just wire and um so they came back to this homeless person and they brought them a little kit and showed who was very interested in this and they showed and they shared ideas about how they could do that and then this um homeless person who you know did happen happen to be from a minority but um Um, that in this case was 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 a part of it but not the the entirety of it they started making jewelry together they couldn't wait to get back and then other homeless people from the street and there are many joined in and so there wasn't enough um there wasn't enough wire and beads and there wasn't enough thread to make friendship bracelets so my two kids um got their uh, dog walking money (laughs) and uh, they used to charge a dollar per dog walk. People in the neighbourhood were getting a great bargain and um, they bought a bunch of materials and made up lots of little um, bags of materials that that they they then took back as as soon as they possibly could uh, for everyone to be able to do this and then be able to sell. Um, And a number of those people started making friendship bracelets making jewelry and 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 the girls really thought of them as their friends actually my kids thought of them as people they knew that they would see now that might not be the right solution for everyone but it was meaningful very meaningful um, to to my children and then there are issues around race and I have been introducing and Catherine and I've been introducing these issues very gently you know right from the early days of having dolls and and um and so on uh, of you know play objects of of different races different colors you know um uh being able to have uh, and taking as much care as we could to have play dates and friendships with 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 um diverse uh, folk if that's you know possible for you but it, it, was for us and didn't make a big fuss about it didn't talk a lot about about that not overly much we just did um we also made a, a a a point of the donations and and so on and so on and so on but where that where that led um and that would there would be as they grew very often questions and conversations at the dinner table about unfairness injustice injustice What we could do about it, why it happened, about how it wasn't just a few bad apples, but this was um, something that was just with us all, and we needed to stand against. Asking the children, where did they see it? How could they take stands against it? So, in um, my daughter, um, she identifies as 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 straight, or how you know that that's the term she uses, but all sorts of other terms, of course. But she became the. the coordinator and leader um, of her spectrum group, um, the LGBTQIA group in, in her school and attended many conferences, many marches, many demonstrations about LGBTQ rights and then decided at 16 to um, try to get an internship with the ACLU in their immigrant rights department. And she would be at 16, 17 years old, right in the teeth of ICE raids, supporting mothers, supporting children, doing whatever she could right as the raid was going on in the aftermath of it. They would race in cars. Go And she worked um, and continues to. She's 18 now and continues to work with the ACLU. But the the interesting point is that that kind of activism gently came about, gently, gently, gently uh, came about my older daughter, for example, is now very active in the permacultural movement, and she sees ecology as where she can make a stand. Now, who knows where our kids make stands? Some of them are more obvious, some of them are not. But it's this, and I wanted to give those examples, and not over-personalize, but give those examples. Some of you may feel that that is not the right thing to have done. Others, yes, it was. But... Essentially, I, um, I'm hoping we can all hold back judgment of each other because this is, this is a conundrum that we're all trying to work out. But to do nothing is, is, on one hand, not an option. But to overwhelm our children with too much too soon is also not another option, uh, I feel. Many of um, white parents that I've been speaking to, and I am a white male um have been saying it doesn't feel right to have our children be safe and be secure and have um people, children of color and families of colour not be safe and secure. And I totally get that 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 feeling when I when I personally experience that, this may not be the case for others, but for me I can trace that back to feeling somewhat of um Shame born of privilege, and there's a question you know should should I not have my own child feel secure in the, because other children don't have that privilege? It's a very delicate question, but the world does not need more traumatized people. It needs children who are going to grow up and take that on and through the simplicity parenting movement over the years and all the people listening to this you you dear simplifiers we've been trying to go through these these famous four layers of simplicity of having our, our homes decluttered but what that means when you really look at what decluttering is is it's not buying in to materialism it's not buying in to essentially white dominated marketing practices, trying to sell our families and our kids stuff that we don't need. It doesn't take any money to not buy more toys and books. And that's available to anyone, any race, any color, any socioeconomic standing. Also with having more rhythm and predictability in a home, again, that's available to anyone. We have um, over a thousand coaches now, simplicity parenting coaches in the world in Africa, in Asia, um, as well as white um, minority, majority countries. And these strivings that we have are available, because they're so to anyone, because they're so simple, so basic, at what level they can be applied is different. According to our home lives, um, for example, I've noticed often that people of white privilege—now I do mean not just white privilege, but I mean—I mean economic, extreme economic privilege—really privilege, struggle with simplifying. Um, this is not just a. This is this is a universal issue what they don't struggle with is is of course you know goes without saying is 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 a life based on that kind of privilege uh, of course but this this not uh, the third layer of not over scheduling our children of not um, just now this this particularly with underserved communities is a is a very interesting well, I've mean, done countless workshops in very underserved communities. Um, and this conversation around how much do we need to do to have our children get ahead in when the, the, everything's stacked against them, but how much is too much so that, it, so that it stresses them out. And this is a very individual conversation according to communities and according to families. And everyone can find their own level and then finally there's this difficult question about filtering out adult information and i've i've spoken about this before and i wanted to clarify that a little bit more today as i have is that to be able to put things in the way i've been talking about you know to talk to children about unfairness to to, to have them be active in dealing with that at school in the playground um, and be able to talk about that with them in a way that's appropriate to their age, and not stressing them, not having them, you know, get, develop that cumulative stress, which which ends up in a, in a trauma response, but actually has them feel active, has them feeling that their parents are seeing this, and doesn't have a silence around the issue. But on the other hand, doesn't have the world shouting at volume to them within their ears. But that, that, that individual decision that we make, when we speak to our children about it, because as some of you know, there's four mantras of, is it true, kind, necessary and securing? That, that is tilted to each individual's um, own way of wanting to raise their child. And I respect, of course, every choice made around that. And I, um, in terms of when children are dealing with issues around real puzzles around homelessness, and the question my daughter asked was, why are so many black and brown people homeless? There's not so many white people who are homeless, um, on, at least on our streets. Um, Uh, that's different on on others, I know. Um, But the... And to be able to talk about that, to talk about the injustices, to talk about what we would call systemic racism, um, to be able to deal with that in that way, talk about it openly, and then to be able to take action that is age-appropriate. This is... I come full circle back um, to this... Um, lovely uh, way of putting it that a dear um, uh, Simplifier, part of the Simplicity community, talked about the middle path. I've been also using that term, the middle way, the middle path. I hope this has been helpful. Again, I want to say in wrapping up, because this is one of the longer podcasts that I've done, but necessarily so, that I hope this has been helpful. Helpful. I don't in any way mean to put out anything other than my own way of seeing it with all the biases um, that I have, that each one of us has, but I, of course, personally have as well. And um, again, I think the individual decisions that we make around this of is it true to our family values... How do we speak to our children and keep our family values intact? Is it necessary to speak to our children? And it's not only necessary, but how. If it is necessary, I hope some of the leading thoughts today will give some, some ideas of how, or at least some examples. Is it kind? Is it kind? Um, do we put it in a way that doesn't, isn't just aggressive, violent, and angry? but can we can we reach out into the world from a place that we wish to do kindness in our family and will it have my child feel safe within this harbor and deal with the guilt of that i understand that but enable them to go out into the world and become little social activists <laughs> to then bigger And larger and larger until the point comes where when conversations come up like this, when they're perhaps mummies or daddies, that they will in turn be able to lean in to the conversations that we had with them when they were that age and hopefully be able to see the wisdom in that and be able to talk to our grandchildren in a way that through our small little step in that way, we can start through the generations to make this, this stance for activism and genuine inclusion. I hope that's helpful. Okay, bye-bye for now.